Welcome, Tariq Podcast listeners. Our first two episodes of this Adwa series focused more on the events. This episode will do so as well, while being more discussion-based. We hope you enjoy it. There are a lot of interesting questions to follow the podcast. Starting off, what factors do you think led to the Ethiopian victory? All right. So there's a lot of things that I think um, that we can discuss. For instance, now we went in, we went into this in depth, like in the podcast, um, the way the Ethiopians purposely, like purposefully misinformed the Italians of their intent and the conditions of their armies was definitely a massive factor like a massive deciding factor so um you know the major vassals like nugus teklaimanot uh of gojam um you know ras ras mikhail of uh, wello etc would like send letters to the italians uh, of course as they were instructed by milik giving the italians the idea that they would betray ethiopia and there are various double agents that the Italians had hired to, um, you know, give information, like to get information. But of course, they were working for the Ethiopian side, especially under Rasalula. And so I think that's definitely one of the massive, uh, you know, deciding factors. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um the misinformation campaign was vital. And, you know, you had uh, a lot of double agents uh, working with that within the Italian army and, you know, feeding them false information, like you said. Um, but also something that was mentioned in the podcast that we discussed in depth was how brilliant Menelik was in regards to importing firearms and making sure that Ethiopia was... Uh, up to par and in many, many regards actually had uh, weapons and firepower that were more modern than what the Italians had at that time. Because uh, like we mentioned, the Italians were giving out hand-me-down rifles and whatnot to their Ascari soldiers in, in, in particular. And the Ethiopians were, um, they had, they had firearms that were superior, you know, and another thing that we have to, you know, understand is the european sense of arrogance or superiority to, to to africans and that really played a huge role um in them underestimating menelik underestimating ethiopians as a whole so when they actually did uh come face to face they were shocked at the military prowess of ethiopians and remember menelik's army was tried and tested that's during that expansion process that Sammy discussed in the podcast, you have to understand that his warriors went to war, went to battle, and they seen um, they seen war that the the Italian army did not see. They had experience that that made them um, truly, you know, veterans in battle. Um, so you know, you add that to the fact that they had superior fi- firepower or uh, firepower that was equal to the to the colonialists, and then you had um, you had soldiers that were trained tried and tested um i think the stage was set for for a very decisive showdown um and in a work to menelik's favor definitely and um i really think that what uh, another big factor was the fact that the italians really underestimated ethiopia's um the Ethiopian peoples, uh, you know, their uh, wish to defend their national integrity and their national sovereignty, you know, because it really, the fact they, they had this, not just the Italians, but the Europeans had this, had this view in their mind that all these African tribes and all these, these chiefdoms were constantly fighting with each other and they hated each other. And there was no, there was no concept of uh, nationhood. So they kind of, uh, they, tra- they just pretty much assumed that Ethiopia, all of these different provincial region leaders and there's regions, they were going to constantly swabble with each other and they were going to, they were going to side with the, the Italians if they kind of, if they, they, if they tried to persuade them enough. 
And uh, they really underestimated Ethiopia's long history of uni unifying uh, against foreign threats, foreign uh, aggression and their threats. And, you know, they had tried to adapt this, you know, this, this uh, very widely used uh, divide and conquer kind of uh, policy that other European, you know, other European um, colonial powers tried to use in order to divide the rest up of Africa. You know, they adopted these very, these practices, but, uh, but the fact that Ethiopia was immune to that really kind of took them by surprise. If y'all know, like in terms of the history of the uh, preceding Adwa, they tried to turn Minilik, the Italians tried to turn Minilik against the previous emperor at Johannes against them. And what that didn't work out when they, they were, well, it did work out sort of in a way what they perceived as it worked out because Minilik was receiving arms because he was a rival to Johannes. So when Minilik came into power and he, he called them out he called them out and he was like, you're not going to take over this country. They were going to, they were, they were like, okay, you know what? Then we're going to do the same thing that we did to Johannes. And we're going to try to bribe the other regional leaders uh, against them. Just like how they tried to do, how they tried to pit meaningly against Johannes. And there's a quote here that the, uh, the Italian prime minister, uh, Crispy actually uh, said to uh, Colonel Bartieri, this is what he said. I'm not, and I quote, Minilik's inexcusable, inexcusable behavior compels us to prepare from now on a defense plan. As we did with Minilik against Johannes, we should now encourage pretenders against Minilik. Rasmen Gesha and Tigre, Mekonen, besides personal ambitions, have serious grounds for hatred and revenge against the emperor. If Minilik disappears, the emperor could be divided into two kingdoms, one in the north and then another in the south under uh, Italy's lofty protections. So it's it's clear to see that they already had this try this 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 uh, these plans to divide Ethiopia and try to pit other people against each other. Like this was this was all a plan that they tried to premeditate. But there there was no kind of thought in their mind that these regional rulers, you know, as divided as they were or as hostile as they were to each other over personal ambitions, they thought they always believed that Ethiopia was greater. There was always there was Ethiopia was a priority against national against national enemies. So that was a huge factor in the fact that you know Minilik he was he was I think people have already said it like earlier in the podcast Minilik tricked the Italians and he made it look like these other you know Rasman Gashan Teklahaimanot were about to betray him. He went and he sent fake letters out you know pretending that they were on his side and then comes to turn out you know they pull up in the morning and all the you got all these. Provincial provincial leaders, and you got all these different peoples lighting up, stacked against them. They they were about to wipe them out. And he was like, "Yeah, y'all thought, you know, Ethiopia comes first at the end of the day." So this concept of national unity, something things that preceded even Italy, like. Italy was itself a unified, it wasn't even a unified country until 1865. There was no concept of Italian nationalism. But Ethiopia as a country, Ethiopia Wienet has it existed for centuries before. And they really, they couldn't come up with that. They didn't, they, they could not, it was unfathomable in their minds that, you know, we had a country that we would, you know, fight uh, and die for. And that's something that all our ancestors did. So that's something that completely, that, that took them by surprise. And that was a huge factor. Yo, man, like going off of that last point, um, I'm not sure if it was Crispy or someone else, like in the Italian diplomatic party. But um, so basically when Minlik took power and he started like uh, taking a sort of hardline policy and when they're on the way to Adwa, he basically said um, something along the lines of uh, Johannes has not died. Minlik, the king of Shoah, is vastly different from Minlik, the king of kings. So basically they were saying there was no difference right now in their approach to Italy. Johannes was the same exact thing as Minlik. So they vastly underestimated like, uh, you know, how far people would go to like protect their national interests as well. Facts. Yeah. Facts. And actually, <clears throat> it just goes to how, how diplomatic Minlik was. He, he was well aware of their... He was well aware of their, their of their intent, and this was I think this is a uh, it was a it was a key like uh, a factor in why Minilik never actually uh, actively 
uh, moved against Emperor Johannes, you know, because uh, like, like I said before, like when, you know, back when Milik and when Johannes was uh, emperor and Milik was uh, Nugus of Shoa, there was a lot of hostilities between uh, Johannes and Milik and the Italians thought that he was going to act on behalf of them. So they kept giving him arms and they kept giving him arms, basically saying that if you, we're going to give you arms if you promise to move against him. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. I'm going to move against Johannes. And for 10 years, he didn't do nothing sorry this man finessed the hell out of these white italian colonial leaders like people really don't understand like how could like the fact that uh, he's not even emperor yet and this king was out here finessing them like he completely used their own weapons against them in that same ad in that same battle and that's something that that's just that's that's black excellence i i we have to say that's black excellence. that's african excellence right there yeah. yeah, I agree. And just to touch on that, the fact that that Ethiopian that that Ethiopianism that 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 has existed not just for centuries, in my opinion, but for millennia, um, was evident in so many cases because the Italians tried that divide and rule conquer, and that may have succeeded in other places, but in Ethiopia, it wasn't that effective because you couldn't betray your motherland. One of my favorite stories of the Battle of Adwa is of. Um, this young, this young man, his name was Lij Abraha. And the Italians, uh, and what is today Eritrea, and uh, I actually think I'd be part of Tigray as well, he, they sent him to Italy to become educated. You know, at that time when they were colonizing uh, Eritrea, when they were um, occupying Tigray, you know, they sent this young boy, his name was Lij Abraha, to, to, to Italy uh, to become educated. Anyways, at the end of the battle, after the aftermath of battle, after Ethiopia had won, they allowed uh, the Italians to come back and, you know, reclaim their dead. You know, the, the soldiers that they had lost, et cetera, et cetera. Ethiopia allowed them to come back, take your soldiers as a, as a, as a sense of good gesture and, and good faith from us, you know, collect your dead, bury your dead, you know. And this kid comes out of nowhere to General Aremondi and he starts speaking in a perfect, I mean, perfect Piedmont accent. It's perfect Italian. And General Aramandi is just shocked. Like, how does this kid know Italian so well? Like, he speaks it fluently. Jesus Christ, he speaks it like with a perfect Piedmont accent, you know? Even the Ascari that fight for us, they, don't, they can barely master, you know, you know, workable Italian. But this kid speaks it perfectly. He was shocked. And they asked him, like, how do you know Italian so well? They realized he was that kid that they sent to Italy uh, as a kid. But what happened is during the Battle of Adwa, this kid ended up coming back to, back to Ethiopia and saying, I'm going to fight for my country against the Italians. So yeah, they gave me an opportunity to become educated, make something out of myself, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, Ethiopia is my country. Ethiopia is my motherland. And to me, that was such one, like one shining example of no matter what, you know, that Ethiopianism is always going to be in your heart and your soul. And this kid ends up fighting against the Italians at the Battle of Adwa. And Menelik, as, as a reward for his services, makes him the, 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 the chief of the village of Intitro, which is northern Ethiopia and Tigray today. And uh, he was only 20 years old. So that was just a great example of, of Ethiopia uh, being something so powerful where even no matter how enticing the enemy is, um, at the end of the day, your motherland is your motherland. You can't turn on your motherland no matter what. And that was such a good, good little example. It's just a funny story. So that definitely ties into the fact that that misinformation campaign that, that Nati was talking about and, and the, the, that Ethiopia and Ethiopianism that Sammy was talking about definitely ties into that, just touches into that. There's so many examples of that, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's just a little funny story. Man. And Nati, I think you wanted to say something? <laughs> Yeah, man. Like on uh, the Lejabra thing, was he was he sent by? Uh, I thought he was sent by Minlik to Italy. I didn't know that it was the Italians who sent him. No, it was actually the Italians that sent him. Uh, when I was reading about, uh, on his uh, on his story, the Italians had sent him to Turin when he was thirteen, and he was educated there, and he ended up mastering Italian. So when he returned, though, he joined the resistance against the Italians, and he fought for Ethiopia at Adwa. And then in recognition of his services, he was made chief of Intitro. And he was only 20 years old at that time, right? And uh, as a gesture of, of friendship to Italy, actually, uh, Lidja Abraha sought the release of Orico Rosario, who was an Italian prisoner from Campania. 
and uh, he was under the, he was under his his basically his his uh, his guardianship until you know Manoli could negotiate you know with the Italians to send them back. But as a gesture of friendship, he's like, you know what, you know, you guys let me study in your country. You know, there's no hard feelings. I'll just give you this guy back. <laughs> and I thought that was just such a funny story. But yeah, it was actually the Italians that sent him that sent him out to become educated. Um, and just to touch on that too, like. I also think a major, major factor was uh, Alfred Ilk, you know, the Swiss engineer that was Menelik's, you know, basically right hand. He was instrumental in what he was doing. And it's, people don't understand the gravity of that. This is at a time where we are not, there was not a lot of Ethiopians in the diaspora like today. We didn't know how to speak European languages. But Alfred Ilg was traveling Europe at that time, telling Ethiopia's story in a language that Europeans could understand. So it made, it humanized Ethiopians to the European public and it made Europeans become uh, vastly against Italy's aggression towards Ethiopia, a sovereign nation. And I thought that was just brilliant. Not to mention Alfred Ill was an, as an arms dealer, right? So like men, uh, Sammy was talking about how, you know, Menelik was playing the Italians, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't do anything, but they were giving him guns anyways for some lip service when he didn't actually commit or do anything against Johannes. But mind you, Alfred Ilg is probably the one behind the scenes telling Menelik, yo, listen, the British hate the French. They have their rivals. Um, know that the Italians are going to try this divide and conquer technique because they've been doing it everywhere around Europe. You need to be smart and play them against each other. So it was, it was amazing that Menelik actually understood the rivalries that were amongst Europeans. He understood what, what European public opinion would be. He understood how to politically maneuver Europeans against each other. I don't think any African monarch at that time was able to successfully do something like that. And that also, yeah, ties into the, to the, to the, to the ignorance that Europeans have for Africans, especially at that time. Like how could a, an African king or African monarch do something like this and play us? No way, you know? Like, are you kidding? No, these are savages, they throw spears. No, you know, like they're, they're not gonna be able to, to politically outmaneuver us. And that's exactly what happens. So that's why underestimating your enemy is, I think is, could be the worst thing ever. And that's what the Italians did. That was one of the key things that was uh, destroying, that destroyed them in the end. Not to mention Alfred Ill didn't just uh, go out there and, 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 you know, give lip service. He was also an arms dealer. He literally, you thought it, the Italians were the only ones supplying Menelik? The French were heavily supplying yeah. Menelik. Because they hated the British and they knew that, all right, if we support Menelik, he can keep the British on hold and they won't get any more territory. So like, listen, listen to the brilliance of this. Menelik had 500,000 rifles in the field by the time Adwa started. Do you understand the gravity of that number? Like, that's crazy, right? Sorry, Sam, you were saying? No, no, I was just saying, I was just wanted to say like, he used their own policies he used their own freaking you know their their tactics against them at the end of the day they really thought they could divide and conquer and he just he did the the same thing against them like it's just it's crazy he the script, yeah. like he divided and conquered europeans essentially is what he did really you know, <laughs> you know? that's crazy to think about yeah. i think we definitely need like an episode on that one as well because like because especially when you think about like how he manipulated the French, British, and Italians, especially like yeah, it's really crazy. That's yeah, facts. Get an episode that's on facts. that one. People don't give him his credit, man, and that's the thing. Why this is what a reason, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast. We all know about the Battle of Adwa. We all know it was an amazing victory. We all know we won, but do we know what really happened? Do we know what happened in depth? And when you know what happened in depth, you just really you give more credit to your ancestors, to our ancestors, and say, wow, like, geez, they were really operating at a different level out back that time, right? And the various circumstances that were surrounding what was happening in Ethiopia and the geopolitical scene in Africa at that time, like, the fact that we were the only country who managed to do that in Africa, and this isn't to to belittle the other, you know, the other efforts to, uh, you know, to fight off co colonialism in Africa. This is not to say there was a lot of people who popped off against that, but what made Ethiopia manage to stay out was because they kept this and they, it was so, like, it's not a coincidence how a lot of these, you know, these countries in Africa have adopted the, you know, the, the, the tri, the green, yellow flag, the green, yellow, red flag based off of our flag. 
because it was, you know, it was an inspiration to, um, you know, to other Africans, to, to, you know, the notions that, you know, nationalism and unity in terms of African unity and black unity could really, you know, could fight off this. It's just the magnitude. It's so it's so, so significant. And we really, sometimes we kind of take for, for granted because we have all of this right now, but back then, you know, the, these concepts were not, were, were, were not, you know, were not almost non-existent back in the days, especially when, you know, the, these negative um, uh, stereotypes of Africans being hostile to each other and these, you know, these barbaric, you know, fiefdoms who were constantly fighting each other. It didn't exist. So it, it just makes it um, all the more great, you know, what, what, what um, our ancestors managed to accomplish, like you said, Elsh. Yeah, absolutely, man. We cannot belittle it. We don't understand the gravity of what was able to be done at that at Adwa. And that's why exactly we did this podcast, because you need to know in depth what, what happened, man. And, and once you understand that, you know, you can never look down on their accomplishments. Mind you, this is something we all contributed to. There's no Ethiopian, I think, uh, you know, that, that didn't have an ancestor or somebody related to them that went out there and fought and many times didn't come home, you know? So like pay homage, like we will forever pay homage. People are always asking like, oh, you guys are always so proud of Adwa. Like, okay, you got, you didn't get colonized. What else? No, we are going to flex that. We die. And so will our children. So will their, ch- their children. All right. Because you heard it in the podcast. I mean, if you had history like that, would you not, not, would you not want to shout it from the rooftops? Like, come on. Mm. Right. So um, what fact, like there's so many factors that led to an Ethiopian victory, but you know, that ultimately I have to, uh, you know, go with Sammy, man, that Ethiopia, that Ethiopianism, it's just, it's too embedded in our, in our DNA. Like you can't, I don't care for fighting amongst each other. Somebody comes into your home to enslave your people you're going to fight that off. And you have to understand Ethiopia has been surrounded by enemies and people that are hostile to our nation that want to conquer us for centuries. That's just a fact. And we're going to go into other podcasts where, and episodes where we talk about the different types of wars, et cetera, et cetera, that, has, that have afflicted our country. However, no foreign power has been able to dominate and subjugate us or occupy us and conquer us for extended periods of time. We have always been able to rally amongst one ourselves, unite, fight to the end against all odds and win and preserve that independence. That's key. I don't think there's going to be any generation of Ethiopians that is going to ever let that happen in our country. We see that today and we're going to see that into the future. We're going to keep fighting. So what I'm saying is we've been surrounded by enemies for so long. That makes us good at war. We don't like war. We don't invite hostilities, but if it comes to us, we will finish it. And Adwa is a good example. One of many examples of One that. of many examples, exactly. Yeah. And I think the Italians were ignorant to that fact because they came in there saying, all right, we conquered this, we conquered that. All of Europe is conquering all these African countries. Uh, it's not that hard. You know, we have superior weapons, more discipline, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Ethiopia is going to be the same, obviously, but they didn't check our track record. We have been doing this for a long time. We are good at fighting. It's so embedded in our nature and our, um, our, our culture too. Like that warrior spirit is something we really, really aspire to be. Like everybody wanted to be a warrior back then because that's how you brought prestige and honor to your country. And yeah. dying on the battlefield was something to be proud, proud of. You brought honor to your country, your household, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they severely, severely underestimated us and they paid for it. Definitely. Nice. You know, one, uh, one last thing I wanted to mention was like, um, you know, that spirit of collaboration, the Ethiopian and stuff is key, but also like the food supply. Um, so Ethiopians travel light and, uh, you know, they move quick and that allows them to move quick. Of course, they um, fleece the land, they loot a lot and loot and pillage from the, what's it called, from the peasantry. But also something that's really important to note is that, uh, you know, people like Itege Taitu and also uh, Abuye Abdul Rahman, who was the chief of the Jale Oromo clan, they provided like thousands of cattle to feed the army and that helped like, keep them fed and like of course, they got starved like for one month at Makali, but yeah, that definitely helped them a lot. Yeah, 
without a doubt. Like there's so many, we, we, so much we can talk about. We're going to run out of time if we do, but yeah, 100%. Like the, the logistics and the fact that you had to feed a hundred thousand warriors uh, who had to find their own food was not, was not easy. And so without, by all means, like we, we need to like, there's so many layers to this campaign that people don't understand the gravity of what it took to do what we did as Ethiopians that day. So I, was, I agree 100% Nati. That was very great, guys. Um, and for the next topic, I wanted to know what is y'all's favorite story or part from the saga or from whatever y'all have covered uh, on this podcast so far about Adwa? Uh, who wants to go? Um, I, I, you can start it off, Sam. Um, honestly speaking, like, I grew up hearing a lot of stories uh, of what particular, you know, certain Arbanyas did, a lot of, you know, regional leaders did, a lot of, you know, um, what their contributions to the war was um, from what I heard you know, from my family growing up, things that you couldn't even, like, you can't really read up on books unless you read, like, the real, like, the Amharic, right, like, the, the, the Amharic stories and stuff, and I hear, like, like almost uh, almost like myths like you would grow up like uh, you would you know sleep at night you know you would listen to before you sleep at night right um and uh, i remember just some of them from the top of my head like i would remember hearing the stories of how um empress Taitu, you know how she would come up she mounted up uh uh, in Adwa, and she brought a lot. She brought a lot. She not only just she, she brought like I believe about twenty thousand men, personal men from her personal region in Yeju and from Gondar to fight in the army. But she also brought a lot of uh, women. So she brought a lot of women nurses. You know, people who were going to feed the army back then because um, she knew how strategically she was. You were bringing a whole army, almost a hundred thousand people from different parts of the country into that tiny that that small region up in the north where, where adwa is and a lot of it you know they were very aware of the fact that resources were you know they were burning out and they would have to move uh you know fast so basically she brought a lot of women she brought a lot of people to bring in their cattle to feed the army while they waited uh until the battle was going to start and even before adwa you know uh, right before adwa started i remember hearing a story of how she brought in a lot of women. Uh, she she disguised women, uh, people from her her clique, I guess you could say. She disguised them as as uh, peasants uh, to go into the Italian camp uh, and to kind of serve them to, to pretend that they were going to surrender to them, basically. Uh, and uh, a lot of the Italian soldiers, basically, they were uh, they would often remark on how Ethiop how beautiful Ethiopian women were, etc., etc. But in reality, what these women did was what they they would carry like a lot of these drugs and they would go and they would poison their wells they would go into they would and they poison their wells and they would make these uh these ravines completely poisoned to the point where when they a lot of these italian soldiers when, would drink from this river and they would drink from this well they were completely just they were out of it so they were because of particularly because of this it made the italians it was from this particular instance why it would have made the italians hasty and they went and they attacked uh, earlier than it was, was suspected because they wanted to kind of delay the, you know, they wanted to delay, they wanted to bide their time until, you know, the, the Ethiopian army was going to completely just ravage um, the, the land and make, uh, exhaust the resources, the natural resources of that land. But because of this, it made them like, they made them desperate and then it had to go out and attack earlier than they would have wanted to. So this, this contribution of what uh, Taitu did, and I'm not hundred percent sure, <clears throat> Whether it's totally based on reality, it could have been, you know, exaggerated, for, for example. Uh, but this is something that I grew up learning about and I've read about it from other, you know, historians. But this is things like this is just gold. Like the fact that they, she would go and she would, the, the fact that women, like they were a, a really influential part uh, of Adwa, you know, the fact that they both were warriors and they would also, you know, they helped feed the, the starving, they helped feed the army, they helped nurse their injuries after, you know, the Adwa 
the aftermath of the battle. Um, this was this particular story really um, uh, really stood out to me. But I would hear you know other stories. You know, Balcha Abbanef. So what he did with uh, with the cannon uh, in, in the Battle of Adwa. You know, there was these you know these stories. But uh, just from the top, just from the top of my head right now, that's that one that kind of stands out to me personally because it's something that i feel like has sometimes been overlooked uh both by you know foreigners and by ethiopians alike so i thought that was something interesting uh i thought that was really interesting for me but there is so many contributions that so many people did uh in adwa that sometimes don't get the recognition they don't get the attention that they really deserve but uh, i'm sure you guys uh have uh, have your own kind of uh opinions and uh, stories that kind of steep speak out to you uh, Sammy, I, I couldn't agree more, man. That was profound, man. Like there are, you know, we hear about Ras Alula, we hear about Emperor Men League, we hear about, um, you know, all these amazing heroes uh, at the Battle of Adwa and the things that they did, and um, just Balcha Safo, and you hear about the Ras Mangishas and the Nugus Taklahamanos, but how many stories go untold? How many stories are unheard? You know what I mean? Like, it's unbelievable to me when we think about how many warriors and how many people contributed so many brave acts of heroism on the battlefield, but also off the battlefield. And when you talk about the contribution of women um, in the Adwa campaign, man, you guys don't understand. Like, do you know how hard it is to cook for an army of 100,000 men? <laughs> like, I can you don't understand the gravity of that situation. Like... You know, Sammy, you hit it on the head. Emperor Taitu was so far thinking. And I'm not trying to be in any way, you know, downplay the contributions of women or whatever, because they did fight on the battlefield too. Don't forget that they did. But women were cooking for the men uh, or for the army during that time, during that campaign. So you have to understand, like, you know, cooking and setting up and, and prepping and making injera for 100,000 soldiers is not easy. You know, and, and, and not to even mention this, you know, it, it took a toll on the peasantry as well because the Ethiopian army foraged. They didn't have supply lines like the Italians. They fought a completely different type of warfare. But for me personally, when I talk about Adwa, like what are my favorite moments of Adwa, you know, um, or the whole story of Adwa and the campaign to Adwa. I mean, to me, it was my favorite part is every time Ethiopians would check european ignorance and superiority like that was so funny to me like my favorite one of my favorite scenes in adwa was uh when you know uh the british diplomat portal gerald portal goes to uh patch things up between rasalula and like just the flex that rasalula had if you guys go back to the first episode and you hear how rasalula is described and how etc etc and at the end after he wipes out 500 Italians at Dogali, you know, the ones that invaded his land and are occupying Ethiopian territory at this time. And he tells them, he tells Rasalula, like, hey, you know, you know, Italy wants compensation as land for you fighting and, and, and defeating their soldiers. And he looks at him and he's like, listen, the Italians should only come to Ethiopia if I, Rasalula, can go become governor of Rome. And that was like my favorite quote because... Like, what are you thinking? What do you mean? You want to you wanna come to my land? You're not from here. You want us to give you our land for you to rule and govern and, and enslave our people? All right. You know what? You can do that if I can go to Rome and do the same thing. How's that? You know? and I, <laughs> like, like, to me, that was just so funny when they check these little, uh, the European arrogance towards, you know, Africans in general. And I thought that was like, that, to me, that was one of the funniest, funniest moments. Like, and you just tell like Ethiopians just had a sense of humor. That's just classic Ethiopian yeah. sense of humor. So sarcastic, you know, like, oh, you want to oh, come here and, and, and rule Sahati and uh, Asmara and all that? Okay, great, great. Well, you know, I want to go rule Rome. So let's, let's make a trade, you know? And that was just so funny to me. And there's so many other moments like that, you know, even when, uh, you know, Hagos, uh, the, the, the Shifta, like Hagos Tafari, I believe. Oh, no, was, it, was it Hagos Tafari? No, it was um, uh, Bahata Hagos. Bahata when Hagos he was, yeah. yeah, Bahata Hagos. When he, when he goes to dinner to one of the Italian generals or one of the Italian commanders' house 
And then at the end of the dinner, he ends up like turning on him and tying him up and saying, you know, like, we're taking over. We're not taking commands from you anymore. And the guy looks at him and he says, go ahead, but Italy is great. And then he shoots back at him. Yeah, but Ethiopia is greater still, you know, like that was such like these are hard moments where they just check European ignorance. Like, oh, my God, like it just, you know, and, and, and even when they took Italian prisoners at the end uh, of Ad- the Adwa campaign, it was just so funny to me that the Italians were in a completely new world where, wow, we're not actually superior to, to blacks. We're, we're, we're in a situation where we're at their mercy, you know, and it just manifested itself in little things where the Ethiopians would eat first and, or they would drink water first and then they would you know, let their animals drink. And then, you know, the Italians would drink last, you know, so little things like that would just make me laugh, you know, and, and, and it just showed me that Ethiopians, you know, um, we really do check, check that ignorance, that white supremacy. Um, and b- the Battle of Adwa was a classic example of that. And I think we still have that independent nature. We, of course, we definitely do. But we, we don't bow our heads to anyone. Like, I think our ancestors said it best, you know, and we don't, we don't bow our heads to anyone. And, and that was just such a good example of it. So there's so many moments like that, that were so cinematic and that should be in a movie. I know I said this all the time, but yeah, those were a couple of my favorites, but yes, the battle of Adwa, my favorite moments were every time um, the Europeans thought or the Italians thought, yeah, we got the Ethiopians, you know, we got them on the ropes We're we're, we're going to win. This is cut and dry. It's going to be an easy campaign, blah, say, blah, you know, they're, they're primitive, they're savages, all this stuff. And then the Ethiopians end up saying, nah, actually, you know what? That's not going to happen. We're going to check you and we're going to win. And it just, just shatters their hopes and beliefs and their ideals. And, and I love that. And that wasn't, that wasn't just an example for the Italians. That was an example for the whole world who felt like, you know, Europeans or whites were, were superior to people of color. And, and Ethiopia shattered that belief, like completely shattered it. It was a situation where blacks defeated whites and in that racial dimension, it was very, very significant to give hope to so many, so many other people around the world. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what else my favorite thing. Nati, what, what do you think, bro? Actually, I just wanted to remark, uh, sorry, Nati, I didn't want to, I'm going to let you go, but I, I just kind of, when you were talking about Ethiopians um, responding to ignorance, uh, European yeah. ignorance and white people's ignorance, it reminds me of the story uh, about 30 years later that was happening. I don't know if y'all uh, you know, heard with the story, but um, basically, there was a, a prince by the name of uh, Ras Hairu, uh, and yeah. he was sent by uh, Haile Selassie uh, as, a, as an ambassador, basically, to uh, Italy, basically. And he sent him, uh, I think it was Italy or is it Britain? No, it was Britain. England. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he sent him to, uh, as an, uh, to the ambassador, uh, as a, to the ministers of uh, England. And they were basically asking him, he, they were like, do you understand uh, French? He was like, no. Do you understand Italian? No, do you understand uh, Spanish? He's like, no. And he was like, well, you must be, you know, educated in ignorance. And he was like, oh, okay, but I was like, do you understand Ormiña? No. Do you understand Amarinya? No. Do you understand Guraginya? No. Well, look at you being ignorant as hell. Like, <laughs> it's the fact that they really just, it, they're so witty in their responses. Like, they're so well aware of their ignorance and they're just, their racism, but it's like, They'd be using their own logic against them. I just wanted to, it just popped into my mind when you were talking about that. I was like, it really, it just, it just reminded me in that scenario that made me, uh, that made me laugh. But uh, yeah, you uh, go ahead, Nati. I just, I don't want to interject, but but it just kind of made me laugh. Sorry, Sorry, quick, quick one too. There was a story where they went to, uh, the Ethiopian delegation went to Hamburg uh, in Germany, and the Germans were showing them their guns too, and they were looking at them like, "Oh, look! At, we're going to impress these savages with our modern weapons." And the Ethiopians end up taking those guns from them, and like, like knew how to operate them, how to reload them, how to shoot them perfectly. And the Germans were looking at them like, "What the hell? How do you guys know how to use our guns so well?" And they looked at them and said, "Your guns are outdated. We have better guns than you back home." And it just shows you like. Like you're right. That wittiness is just so funny, man. Like I love, I love Ethiopian humor, man. There, it's nah, just great. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, my bad, Nati. Go ahead, go ahead, bro. Nah, nah, yeah, fast. That was a funny story, especially. Uh, you know, it was it was between Ras Hailu, Takla Mount of Godjam, and King George V. So this yeah. was a conversation oh, I between. I don't remember who it was between. I know it's Ras Hailu, but I thought it was just a a, a British minister. Honestly, I didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was dead as the king when um. Wow. <laughs> When he, when uh, Haile Selassie was still uh, what's it called, 
um, you know, Crown Prince when they went on their tour of uh, Europe. Yeah. Different names. Yeah. So, yeah, that story always makes me like, it, like, it cracks me up a lot. Um, but yeah, my favorite part of um, what's called the Battle of Ado would have to be, you know, there's a lot. If, if it's not, um, you know, uh, the one that I discussed earlier in the episodes uh, about... Um, you know, Fitorari Gabeyo, if it's not about him, it would have to be Itegetai to ripping up the treaty. And, uh, you know, when she ripped it up and like her response to her brother's suggestion to submit to Italy, she was like, you know, okay, you should wear this dress and I'll wear your pants. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that one's, yeah, you know, that's like... That was iconic. Exactly. Yeah. I, there's just a bunch of, like you guys said, there's just a lot of... Um, different stuff like different amazing quotes and sacrifices they're so amazing in this uh, throughout the entire thing no, without a doubt man ethiopians are just so funny man like even when the italian prisoners were going back to italy when italy paid for them you know all that all those millions of dollars to medley for for that ransom quote well it wasn't it wasn't a ransom it was uh it was an exchange but you know it really ideally it was a ransom but anyways when they were going back home their captors you know like, remember that one that one Oromo, his name was Buru, the one in Hara that was like, uh, had, I think, uh, one of the generals under his command at that time. Where, where, and, um, you know, he would piss him off all the time because like, yeah, we defeated you guys, et cetera, et cetera. But when they're leaving, they kept, they gave them a long list, the prisoners that they had under their command, a long list of things to send them from Italy that they needed. They were like, all right, we want shoes. We want dresses. We want this. We want more guns, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, it just blew my mind. Like you guys had them as prisoners for damn near three, four months. And now you guys are sending them requests to bring them to send you stuff from Italy. Like it's just hilarious to be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Ethiopian humor is just uh, undefeated, man. Undefeated. <laughs> um, Something I've always heard growing up. I don't have any idea about any specific battles, but um, I've always heard that women would use barbare and they would use that to blind Italian men. So I don't know if that's true, but that's something I always heard about. I thought that was clever. So um, do y'all have any confirmation on that? Uh, yeah, honestly, I don't. I heard about this as a kid, but <laughs> I don't know if it was to be taken literally. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I think it was. Yeah, like yeah. Um, during the second, during the Italian occupation, uh, the Arbenias, the female Arbenias particularly, you know, some of them, uh, you know, went to extreme, like, extent. They would uh, sleep with the soldiers and, like, slaughter them afterwards. But, like, I've also heard that they would put berberries in their eyes or something, like, to, to sort of torture. Like, I've also heard this thing. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, but I don't know, I don't, like, have any um, paper. Hey, yeah. I mean, I do remember um, hearing about when during the Italian uh, occupation during that, that second fascist war, I do remember hearing about stories of, um, you know, back in the, you know, the, the, ta, the highlands, you know, when the Italians were marching down and Ethiopian women would like, be cooking wet with a lot of zate in particular. And they would, you know, it would be burning hot and they would pour it on them. They would pour it down on the, on top of their houses, you know? So that, that's something that I do remember hearing about that, that, and that shit burns like that stuff burns the house so i do remember hearing stuff like that um and I, they probably added meat meat or butter in there maybe so maybe but uh in terms of that i do remember hearing something like that um but yeah. butter in eyes like that's that's uh that, that, that i mean that, i'm not gonna say that probably hurt like uh that probably hurt like hell so you know maybe. you know why I, I believe it, or I'm inclined to believe that was true, is because, look, you know, personally, personal story, you know, my grandmother, uh, you know, or she, uh, she's from Shoah, uh, she's from Menz, and um, growing up, she had a rule, and that was, that rule went through generations, all right, from my, my, my mom, to me, to her, you know, and it was, don't, if you get, if you get into a fight, don't come home crying, okay, I don't want to see you cry, <laughs> Uh, you go back out there and you keep fighting. All right, cool. So that being said, my aunt was in, when growing up in Addis Ababa, 
my grandmother would <laughs> tell her, look, if you can't, because she would fight boys and she would, sometimes she would get beat up. She was so, she was really strong back then. She's like, look, if you get beat up, if you can't, be, if the boy is too big or too strong, you keep Barbare in, on you and you throw it in his eyes. <laughs> and we all know Shoa, especially, you know, when you come from men, that Menze background, like they are known for being very patriotic and whatnot. I'm pretty sure that's something that was carried on from generation to generation. Like, you know, if my, if my aunt was doing that, you know, at her young age, um, it, just, it just shows me that, you know, it's pretty not far-fetched that uh, Ethiopian women were, were doing that at the Battle of Adwa too. <laughs> so yep. that's just my my little anecdote my little my little story but yeah i think i think that would have been very likely <laughs> nah for sure that's that kills me actually <laughs> nah <laughs> thanks for confirming that that story came from your ancestors literally came came. your great grandmother or something <laughs> that was for real that was that was us you know we did that so i think it's true it. <laughs> Why do you think Atze Menelik didn't push the Italians out of the Horn of Africa? So that question, I think, can be divided like into two. I think uh, a lot of people ask this question, especially because first, um, there are two things. Did Menelik intend to push them out of the Horn of Africa? And then second is, why didn't he do that? So for the first question, you know, there's a lot of sources that indicate that Minlik did want to. Uh, for instance, I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast um, from Raymond Jonas's book. I think page page 130, well, 137, around there. Um, Ato uh one of Ras uh lieutenants, was actually sent uh, into the Italian, like, you know, the Italians had held Macalia um, at that point and were fortified inside it. So he ac- accompanied an Italian doctor back into the fort and was fe- was given like a feast in his honor. So uh, he got drunk and he explained that Milnik intended to enjoy a drink in the Italian governor's pra- palace at uh, Masao, which indicates that Minlik did intend to go, uh, to go that far. Plus, I believe that Minlik's own, um, you know, secretary, meaning Lord of the Pen, Gabasilasi, mentioned that Minlik's intention was to push the Italians completely out of Africa. I think you can find that in uh, Reflections on the Battle of Adwa by Paulus Milkias. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, there are a lot of factors that led to Milik not doing that. One was the fact that he spent one month uh, outside the gates of Makale, uh, just siege and uh, like waging, like holding a siege over the the Italians who fortified themselves in there. And Ethiopians were not used to that in any way whatsoever. So um, that exhausted their food supplies. Uh, the little ones that they did have that also turned like the local population hostile because Ethiopian soldiers had to take food from them. Um, Plus, you know, it really just increased tensions uh, in the area. So that one month outside of uh, Makali really cost them a lot. So they didn't really even have the resources to push on from Adwa to Masao because the terrain in Eritrea is very, very dry. So foraging in those areas is uh, extremely difficult. So that's one of the reasons I don't think, um, and that's one of the main reasons that people cite, especially when discussing this. The other is of course some uh, uh, Minlik, some cite that Minlik was pretty shrewd and wanted to sort of separate or reduce maybe Ras Mangesha's sphere of influence that's uh, that's what a lot of people also try to say, um, but you know it could have been a combination of those two, or it could have been uh, what I think, which is uh, mainly food and terrain. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I, no, I, I, oh yeah. yeah you're, 
Yeah, no, I agree. I 100% agree, uh, particularly when it comes to the shortage of supplies. Like they didn't have supply lines. They don't, f Ethiopians at that time didn't fight conventional warfare, quote unquote. Uh, they were not orthodox in their military strategy in the sense that they had supply lines that would feed their army. Their army literally had to fend for itself. So, you know, those little, uh, uh, those little lunch boxes that we have back home. What do you call them? Uh, uh, I don't know what I'm talking yeah, my God, there you go. Yeah, that's literally, you would pack what you can, your family would come with you, your wife, your kids would accompany you to war. And you know, you packed what you could for the war. But if you ran out of food, it was kind of like, yo, figure it out. You got to forage, you have to get it from the local population, you have to, like, literally pillage the peasants, and it took a toll. Um, that's also gave Manalik uh, an advantage in the sense that um, his army was more mobile, more agile than the Italians. But Mind you, if you run out of food and your army can't eat, then your army's going to wither away. That's why, like, moving quickly was a matter of survival for Manalik's army. And cutting off the Italian supply line was brilliant because they, the Italians could not operate that way. They didn't fight war that way. Um, but outside of that, you know, one major, major thing that people don't understand is Ethiopia went through a major drought at that time, you know? And it was historically considered one of the worst droughts if not the worst drought in our history to this day. They used to call it Kufukan, which means, uh, which means the evil days, you know? And that's how people refer any reference, any drought or compare any drought to this day, to those days. They would say, like, right, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you got to understand when, when they went through that drought at that time in that campaign, um, part of the reason for that drought happening was the Italians were importing cattle from abroad to feed their soldiers. And those cattle that they were bringing in from India brought in rinderpest, which is, a, which is a disease that affects cattle. And that's a disease that Ethiopian cattle had not been exposed to. And that ended up killing the, cattle, the local cattle in Ethiopia and wiping them out and killing off our food supply. So we're going through a drought. How in the world are you going to now take your army and into an entire colony that was established uh, already by the Italians for X amount of years and now try to uh, liberate that, 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 that colony. That makes no sense. Now, Menelik knew he secured Ethiopia's borders. And yes, the, 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 the land that, that was occupied or turned into a colony of Eritrea by the Italians uh, was Rasman uh, That was his territory. However, Eritrea had been established as a colony for many, many years. And you have to understand when Ethiopia was, or Menelik was doing the expansion process to expand, defeat his rivals and unify Ethiopia. That happened in what, 18, in the 1877s? You know, so for almost 10 years, that campaign to solidify his control, uh, import arms, et cetera, et cetera, it took years to do that. And in that time, the Italians were not just sitting there folding their hands and watching what was happening. They were fighting against Rasmangusha, they were consolidating their power, and they had turned Eritrea into a colony. And now they had an established colony where they had uh, full military, economic, et cetera, et cetera, control. And now, once the Battle of Adwa happened, already established. So what I'm trying to say is that now for Menelik to defeat the Italians at Adwa and now go into Eritrea meant that he was now going to... Uh, going to the belly of the beast, essentially. Yes, they had no battle. Exactly. You have, you have an, an established colony with, with Italian soldiers that are coming in every single day from Italy to Masawa that are reinforced by uh, Eritrean Ascari. Keep that in mind. They had uh, almost 50% of their military was Eritrean Ascari. They were fortified. They were ready. Why would Menelik now take 100,000 troops that had just sacrificed themselves to secure what is Ethiopia's borders into the colony of Eritrea to fight more in a hostile region where there's more Eritrean Ascari, there's more uh, Italian colonial soldiers that are reinforced, that are fresh, that are ready to fight and, 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 and sacrifice his troops. It makes no sense. And mind you, doing that within a time where Ethiopia is going through a drought because of the Rinderpest. That makes no sense to me. I, as a leader, he said, all right, we won. They recognize the sovereign independence of Ethiopia. Here are our borders. I cannot 
justify this. I cannot go into this colony of Eritrea where they are hostile to me. They are fighting against me. The local population is against us. We cannot do that. I'm not going to sacrifice our territorial gain and our, and our recognition uh, to liberate uh, an Italian colony. It makes no sense. And uh, to me, I understand his decision. And as a leader, you have to make hard decisions. And um, that's, in my opinion, that is the reason why Menelik did not pursue uh, his victories or, or uh, basically uh, follow up his victories in Ethiopia into Eritrea and liberate for the rest of Eritrea. What do you think, Sam? No, honestly, like you and Nati, you guys have explained it really well. You know, um, this has probably been one of the, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest like mysteries in terms of the debates on uh, whether Minilik should have, you know, went initiative. He should have pursued them to completely eradicate them from the horn. Um, why didn't he pursue them? What was his, uh, you know, his attitude and why he never really addressed it? You know, this is something that has been, you know, the subject of debate to many historians, to many academics. But um, like both of you have already pointed out, there are a multitude of different factors, uh, both political, economic, strategic, you know, it was very, it was, it was, there was just so many things that was going on and both of you have really covered it well. And um, like people don't understand, I feel like that's um, in terms of the economic point of stand view, uh, like I, I mentioned it before, all of us have mentioned it before that there was a there was a, this this army that Menelik, you know, he amassed. He amassed it from all a whole bunch of different regions, and they were abundant. Like they came, there were so many to the point there was almost a hundred thousand people, and that was back then. That was a lot of people back then when the population of Ethiopia that was almost like you could say like almost maybe five percent of the entire population was in that one district of uh, Ethiopia as a whole. So it comes to a point where, you know, they were already facing, you know, uh, plights, they were facing diseases. And a lot of some people don't understand, uh, might not know is that previously, a couple of years ago, Ethiopia faced a really, really bad drought. They faced a really bad drought. They faced a very bad famine that killed a lot of cattle. Uh, and the fact that sometimes people don't know is that 90% of Ethiopia, the, the cattle and the livestock was completely wiped out by a rinder pest. So they were already, you know, where they're running out of supplies. The Ethiopian army was running out of supplies. It was running out of, you know, um, food to sustain itself because that, that, that specific target land was, it, it was unable, they were, that land could not sustain such uh, an a mass amount of people and soldiers who were constantly eating and they needed these resources in order to get regain their strength. So, Practically speaking, you know, they, they drove the Italians out of Ethiopia. They drove the Italians out of Ethiopia, uh, the Battle of Adwa. So it, it comes to a point where it's like, now they're going to, the question is whether they need to dislodge them as a whole. They need to go into the Italian occupied area of what you would consider uh, Eritrea and Asmara and Masawa and, uh, you know, these, these areas. And as you said, um, Elsh, you know, they were the, the situation there is different than it was there because they had spent 10 years almost 10 15 years you know uh amassing uh you know arms amassing you know str strengthening their bases the local bases within these uh occupied areas there were occupied much uh, prior to uh, Minilik becoming emperor. So by the time that Minilik became emperor, these were already uh, firmly under the Italian uh, control. So there was a, there was a risk that if Minilik's forces who were very much, who were, you know, they were victorious, but they were uh, still very tired. There was that risk that if they went into these these um these these areas that were very strengthened, there it, it was going to give them time. The Italians could have you know they could have um gotten more uh soldiers. They could have gotten more soldiers to help out um you know to help out these these bases. And you know if the Minnikes took these um you know these these weakened soldiers, a lot of them died, a lot of them wounded, and they lost. That would have been disastrous for Ethiopia. They would have caused complete momentum at the end of the day. And they would have, they would have destroyed, they would have lost everything that they had fought so hard for. And, you know, there, 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 there are these, these, there are these factors that as a, as a, a leader of a sovereign nation, you know, you sometimes you, just like you said, that you have to make, you know, tough choices. You have to make the tough political choices. And, you know, from a practical you know, point of view, there was that these factors that were very significant in, you know, altering his view. And it wasn't just that there was, um, 
there, there were a lot of uh, Eritrean, native Eritrean uh, nobles who were in his court, like uh, Atul Gebre Exiaber and Basha Aulom, who advised him not to pursue the Italians. They were aware of the Italian strength in these bases that they said that if you come here, you will, it's a really big risk and you might as well not risk, you know, coming here because you're going to lose everything you fought so hard for. So these were advisors these were native eritrean um you know tigrinya speaking advisors who advised him not to do so so you know there were these contributing factors that a lot of people don't really know so um you know you know the events the, the circumstances that you know that were proceeding even before minilik's ascension to power really kind of it really you know minilik was facing an uphill battle you know as soon as he became emperor uh, there were things that were completely out of his hands that um you know he couldn't prevent and i think he he pretty much figured that he consolidated his his loss and his situation right now um in terms of you know what was what was best suited for ethiopia uh, as a country and you know to prevent any sort of risk of you know losing all hopes all you know all gains that they you know worked so hard for to maintain their serenity because they could have lost it all all of these soldiers, 100,000 soldiers they got from the entire country, had they lost, they went into these areas and they, had they lost, had, were they defeated, it would have left the country completely wide open to attack. It, it would have just been completely disastrous. So, um, yeah, but it, 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 at this point, it's just one of those things where we leave it to to speculation often but also we have to you know regard these these um these different factors these socio-political factors the economic factors uh you know in, in terms of that but you guys have already you know pretty much reflected uh you've already pointed them out uh flawlessly so um, you know just to add to that you know it's something that we can you know speculate on but in the long run it set our borders today you know what you would see um in uh, present-day Ethiopian borders today, and and we managed to be, uh, maintain our sovereignty because of that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's absolutely right, Sammy. Um, yeah, and you know what? That's not to belittle in any way what Menelik was able to achieve, um, um, but he was also very uh, realistic, and you're not going to bite off more than you can chew at this point, right? Going into pursuing it pursuing the Italians into Eritrea and trying to um, take them out of a colony, like you said, that had been established for 10 years, 10 plus years. That's not, that's not going to be easy at all. And it would have led to uh, potentially an Ethiopian defeat and he would have led the country, left the country wide open, like you said. So I agree 100%. It did hinder Ethiopia in the sense that Ethiopia did not have access to our own ports. Yeah. And yes. we, had to, we had to look elsewhere for ports in order to import or export uh, what, we, what, what, what we had in our country. So um, that was something that, that was definitely, in my opinion, um, it was not a mistake because we talked about the factors as to why Menelik did not pursue the Italians into Eritrea and liberate all of Eritrea. Um, however, um, it did have two very significant uh, circumstances. One being um, you had the Italians that were firmly established in Eritrea and were to conquer it for the next 70 years. And that would completely sever uh, our, the two populations or two peoples for almost two or three generations where, um, you know, now they are going to be hostile towards Ethiopia because the, the colonists were hostile towards Ethiopia. And that was going to leave a deep wedge between the Ethiopian people and the Eritrean people. Um, furthermore, the Italians could use and did use Eritrea as a launching pad to invade Ethiopia for a second time, um, which we're going to go into more detail uh, on another episode. Um, but in 1935, Mussolini used Eritrea and his other colonies in Somalia uh, to penetrate and invade Ethiopia for a second time. Um, so it left Ethiopia vulnerable in two ways. There was always that threat that the Italians could invade Ethiopia again using Eritrea. Yeah. And we were completely surrounded and landlocked and we had to look elsewhere for our port access. And so we had, they had that, uh, that those strategic advantages over Ethiopia in the long run, but Menelik could not 
pursue them further because it would have been, in my opinion, a mistake. It would have decimated the Ethiopian army. Yes, we were strong. Yes, we were solid. But like Sammy said, our troops were accumulated from all corners of Ethiopia. They were far away from home. They were tired. They fought at Ambalege. They fought at Makale. They fought at Adwa. These are not easy battles. And you expect them now to go into, into an Italian colony where fresh um, troops were coming every, every, every day? Come on, man. You know? Yeah, you uh, never know. There, there was talks that they were going to turn on Minilik if they, because they were exhausted. This was something that you know, was in the past. You know, if you pushed your soldiers too much and they're unmotivated, they're going to, they might turn on you and they're going to just completely give up. And that would have been even more disastrous. Exactly. So, you know, Baratieri made a bad decision attacking Menelik instead of retreating. Menelik was a shrewd military strategist, but he's also a realist. He's like, I'm not going to make the same mistakes as these guys. All right, cool. This is what's happened. But also, here's the, re- here's the situation. Here's the reality of the situation. We're in a drought. My soldiers are tired. They're hungry. They're far away from home. Eritrea is an established Italian colony. They have fresh troops coming in every day from Italy into Masawa. They, they are reinforced. They have supply lines in Eritrea. This doesn't make any sense. Right. We can't go in there. We can't. And honestly, uh, if I were Menelik, I would do the same thing. Um, again, this is, um, this is something that we can always speculate um, and forever debate. However, here are the facts of the situation at that time. And the rest is up for interpretation for all of you. But right. this is just our, our, uh, our understanding of the situation based on the facts on the ground at that time. That's all. Exactly. Well, I think uh, we've convened, you know, I think we've uh, talked on some pretty hard-hitting uh, discussion points. You know, uh, Adwa, it, it's, uh, it's, it means so much to all of us, you know, and, uh, you know, the events that led, up to, that led up to the war, the events, you know, during the war and what happened after. All of these was, you know, these were, in the, these were completely, they were all significant in their own respective ways on what shaped, you know, the future events, uh, uh, the future political events of Ethiopia, and even to other African nations in the Black Diaspora. These were all very significant in every, uh, to, you know, to each of us. So, um you know, that's why, you know, I think it's important to have like these historical discussions and you know, to speak about this because a lot of, you know, like you said, Elsh, you know, um, a lot of us know, you know, about Adwa, but do we really know about it? Do we really know like the details and, you know, uh, you know, the hidden cracks in terms of some of the mysteries that we might have, the questions that we might have, you know, even, you know, I think talking about it really we can unearth a lot of, you know, a knowledge that, you know, that um, a lot of us might uh, might not know of. You know, there's things that I learned today that I didn't hear about, you know, myself, even though I'm well-versed about, uh, I'm, I would say I'm well-versed on, you know, the historical, uh, the events of Adwa, but there are things, you know, we've, we've talked about that I did, had no idea. I never heard. So it was really, it was really uh, great for me to hear. I think it was um, very helpful for me to hear, uh, you know, your, you both of your, uh, both of your inputs and your perspectives on this history and uh, things that I, I, I never learned. So um, thank you all to both of you guys to you and uh, Nati. My pleasure, man. And I feel the same exact way, man. I learned so much that I didn't know before. And that's, that's, that's what we did this podcast for, man. That's the beauty of it, man. We're here to share knowledge um, based on viable facts and historical facts. And this is, this is what we're here for, man. So, uh, you know, it's my pleasure and thank you, Sammy. Nah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, uh, stay tuned guys. Uh, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thanks guys. (laughs) We're going to be doing a thank you every episode in a different Ethiopian language. For this episode, we will use Tigrinya. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to follow us on social media at Tari Podcast on all major platforms. Bye.